Hi, I'm Andrea Blythe, co-host of New Books and Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we're speaking with Octavia Cade about her book, Mary Shelley Makes a Monster. Just a heads up, we had some technical difficulties while recording this show, and in fact had to record it on two separate occasions, which is why the first half probably sounds a bit different from the second half. However, I hope you'll stick with it because I really enjoyed this conversation. Octavia Cade is a New Zealand writer. She's sold nearly 50 short stories to markets like Clark's World, Asimov's, and Strange Horizons. Several novellas and a collection of essays on food and horror have sold to various small presses. She's the 2020 Writer-in-Residence at, at Macy University, and Mary Shelley Makes a Monster is her second collection of poetry. The first, Chemical Letters, was written while studying for her PhD in science communication and is about a woman who spends her afterlife in the periodic table. Hi, Octavia. Thank you for so much being on the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I absolutely love your book. In fact, it's like one of my favorite poetry books that I read this year. Oh, fantastic. That's lovely to hear. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So, um... Generally, I kind of like to start at the beginning, and I would like to know a bit about how you got into writing and how you connected with poetry in particular. Oh, well, um, basically, I got in through reading. I've always been mad on reading ever since I was a kid, and uh, just read and read and read until um, one day, I suppose, about... Oh, maybe 2011, 2012, I thought I might like to give a short story writing a go. And so I did. Um, Mostly I was interested in in stories. I mean, I liked reading the the odd bit of poetry, but I never really wrote it. That changed when it came to my my PhD because I, I did mine in science communication and I was looking at how poets used poetry, obviously, to to communicate science in different ways, all the different ways that they would do it. And so I thought, well, this is quite interesting, but, you know, seeing how other people do it is is good, but I'd like to give it a go myself. And that when the, the first book came out, the, the Chemical Letters, but um, a year or two back, I thought I'd give a, another poetry collection a go, and it went in, in, in an entirely different way. So that's how Mary Shelley came out. Great. So yeah, I think it's interesting that you got your PhD in science communication. Um, I'd love if you talk a little bit more about that in terms of, um, I don't know, I don't know as much about science communication, but I also know that I've heard interviews about like certain aspects of science having a communication problem. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I can go on forever about this because um, my, my background too is in science. I did a master's in biology and seagrass reproduction. Seagrass is those little grassy bits uh, you see on coasts. It's the basis of a lot of marine food webs and it is sort of disappearing about five times as fast as the Amazon rainforest and climate change is a factor in this. But anyway, what I, how I think of science communication is that it's almost a translation of science for normal people because uh, scientists are taught from the very beginning really at university to write about their science in a very, very formal and very off-putting way. I mean, I don't know if you have ever read a scientific paper, but they are not welcoming documents. Um, They're kind of awful. Uh, One of the reasons I chose to go into science communication rather than science, basic science, um, because I imagine the rest of my life working with scientific papers and kind of wanted to die. <laughs> They're really awful. Um, and it's they self-defeating too, in a way. I mean, every every discipline, whether it's law or science or whatever, has, has their own jargon, their own way of speaking to other people within that community. But science is particularly good at locking people out. Uh, if you look around the world, you see it with the, the anti-vaxxers. You see it with the people who don't believe in, in climate change. And it's not that they're particular, it's not that, you know, they're particularly stupid people. It's not that they're evil. It's just that they don't understand because science has been made so ring-fenced. And 
Science is about such interesting things. There's so much out in the world that is sort of wonderful and marvellous, and to find out about it is a fascinating experience. Until you get to the journal and every point of interest and um, accessibility is just sucked out. Uh, Have you ever read a scientific paper? (laughs) I actually work at a technical trade magazine. Oh, you poor thing. <laughs> yeah, on on aluminum manufacturing. So I have indeed read many like 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 they they'll go into the chemical aspects of how to make aluminum. Mm. And so I've read some of that kind of stuff and oof, boy, it is dense. Awful. Yeah. <laughs> Awful. Um some of the journals are having sort of a bun fight within themselves about how accessible they should make scientific papers. And and some of them have decided now that within the methods section, you know, the part where you tell people what you've done through this experiment, it's all right to use first person to say, I did this rather than this was done by me. And it's such a tiny thing uh, that makes, you know, this section only marginally more accessible to normal people, and and yet there's there's pushback on doing it. I, I don't understand it. And then they sort of turn around and and wonder why a significant fraction of of the population really doesn't understand vaccination or something like that. Well, you've made it so difficult. <laughs> <laughs> you've made science seem boring and something that only you know people with PhDs can understand. And so the normal person who, you know, is interested in the world around them and wants to find out about it and would be thrilled to, to you know, understand how this works or what this animal does um, would be, it's just so off put by the way that you've done things. I mean, look at David Attenborough, for example. Um He is so beloved in the animal world. I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, me and my sister would be watching his documentaries every every Friday night when we were little. It was a family thing. And I think that's an excellent example of decent science communication because he's very, very good at speaking to people in words that they understand. I mean, isn't that the point? Yeah, yeah. You, You shouldn't have to stand by with, you know, a dictionary and access to the internet to get through a paragraph of of the scientific paper. And the thing is, so many science students come to university and they love science and they want to share it, but every tool they have to usefully share it is hammered out of them through this process of, of lab report, lab report, lab report. Be as objective as you can. You know, never use any contractions, never talk about yourself, never do anything that, that could be that could make science interesting. And we've ended up now with reams and reams of scientific journals that are practically unreadable for normal people. And so I think one of the interesting things of science communication is translating all this fascinating work into, you know, accessible communication, accessible writing. It's not like popular science isn't um, isn't read when people write it. Uh, it's not like science fiction isn't read when, when people write it. And of course, there's a lot of inaccurate science fiction, um, but it's still people engaging with the ideas, you know, behind science. And that's a really interesting thing, I think. I mean, it all tells me that people want to engage and they will engage when they have the opportunity, but we make it so, so damn difficult for them. Yeah, totally. Um, so, you mentioned poetry in relation to this. How does that come into play with uh, the science communication aspects of it? Well, the way I see it is that there are many, many different paths to, to access science. I mean, if you think about, you know, the people in your family, the people in your circle of friends, they all have ways of communication that, that work for them. And, um, some people are very poetry minded and science will work in uh, the ability to access science through poetry will be is, is one way that um, really works for them. And some people don't, of course, there are a lot of people who just don't read poetry at all, but there should be other, other ways for them to access science. Um, the point I think is to give as many possible avenues 
as you can. And that way, you know, everyone has, has some way in which they can engage in conversations about, you know, bioethics or, or something like that, because the the more you cut down these ways, the fewer people can can access the conversation, and the the smaller and the and the narrower that resulting discussion will be. Yeah. So let's get into uh, Mary Shelley makes a monster, and yeah. can you tell me a bit about the book and what inspired you to start writing about Mary Shelley and her monster. Oh, I was down at the local library trawling the shelves as I do on a frighteningly frequent basis. And I came across a biography of, of Mary Shelley. I think it was written by Miranda Seymour. Um, the thing was the size of a brick. I mean, it was like 700 pages long. <laughs> but, but I thought, you know, I'll, I'll give it a go. I, I do not tend to um, go for long books. Um, but I thought I, I would give it a go. And so I took it home and, and read the thing over several weeks because it was very long and, and quite difficult. But she was such a fascinating character. I mean, to come up with the, with Frankenstein, to write that book at the age of 17, um, it's extraordinary. And I thought, you know, there is such a fascination with the mind that can do that and with the idea of monstrosity, especially in how it intersects with um with femininity and with women, uh, because she did in many of her social behaviours go against the expected, you know, behaviours of the day. Uh, she stood out in ways that were not always pleasant to the community around her. And so that was how the the, the first poem came about. And I wrote it and I sold it to, to Strange Horizons. And then I sort of left it. Um, I didn't it wasn't meant to be a collection or anything like that. It was just meant to be one biographical poem where Mary Shelley makes a monster, not the monster of Frankenstein, but a similar sort of cobbled together creature of the pieces of her life that caused her, her difficulty, the, the death of her children, for instance, uh, or her the difficulty of her relationship, well, the absence of her relationship with her mother who, who died, you know, giving birth to her. And, um, so what sparked the rest of it was again trawling through the library and again I came across another massive um, biography, this time of Catherine Mansfield. Uh, do you know Catherine Mansfield? I don't know much about her, although after reading her book I looked her up and I was like, oh, she's a New Zealand writer. Yeah, she is possibly the, the most famous New Zealand writer, um, short stories mainly, and, and she died young of consumption. Uh, but there were, it was a very fascinating biography written by, I think, Claire Tomlin. And there was just something about her character, uh, the way that Tomlin sort of portrayed Mansfield, that made me think, you know, there is a very similar um, person to to Mary Shelley here, not in their interests really, not in the way that they wrote, which is entirely different, but um, in the way that they they conducted themselves. They both ran away to to Europe with uh, unsuitable men for, for the time. Uh, and Catherine Mansfield lost a child, and I don't, there was just something that clicked in my brain between these two women, and thought, you know. If Mary Shelley's monster came across Catherine Mansfield, you know, what what would that interaction be like? Because there is some sort of basic level of, of similarity there, I thought. And so I I um, did the, the second poem and I was at Clarion West at the time, which was a science fiction and fantasy six-week writer's program, which is run in Seattle. I was lucky enough to, to go there. And so I, I read out this, this little poem and to the other 18 people on the course, and, and only one of them knew who Catherine Mansfield was. The, um, the uh, other writer who did know was from Australia. And so, you know, there's some geographical overlap there. Um, and then I just kept going because, you know, I keep reading these biographies of or autobiographies of, of women writers. Um, Janet Frame, who is another New Zealand writer who uh, had an extraordinarily interesting life, but also quite a difficult one because she was misdiagnosed with schizophrenia and ended up in a, a mental health hospital undergoing electric shock treatment. 
back in the day. And of course, that took me to Sylvia Plath, which is the, the obvious way to go from there. And also Virginia Woolf, who, to be honest, her writing doesn't do it for me. It's very <laughs> beautiful, but it's so slow. <laughs> but but Wolf to me was far more interesting than her writing. And so it was basically just this this ongoing um uh, series of visits to the library coming back with giant biographies and <laughs> and thinking you know you really really interest me how can I fit you into this and the the ways that sort of parallels and mirrorings came up the drownings and the um, the, the sort of suicides and the the mental health issues uh, the the dead children um, over and over again, and it, it wasn't planned on my part, but this this very organic sense of um, parallels uh, developed that I thought was super interesting. So, so that's how basically <laughs> support your local libraries. They they um, give you heaps of inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, that's so cool. Um, what. I remember um, when I first read uh, the the opening poem, Mary Shelley Makes a Monster, and I was on Twitter and I was like, oh, wow, that two hearts thing is so cool. And you're like, no, that's literally a thing that, that she kept her dead husband's heart. So, yeah, well, because um, Percy Shelley drowned, you see, he and, he and Byron both drowned. And when they sort of washed back up and they got the bodies back, they – uh, Shelley was burnt on the beach, um, apart from his heart, which Mary Shelley kept in a little sort of little box, which which she sort of kept with her for most of her life. I thought that's pretty hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Mary, Mary, you're an interesting woman, but I don't know that I'd go that far myself. <laughs> uh, yeah, these, these poems in Mary Shelley makes a monster. They do come across as, as fantasy. Because, of course, they are, but there is a strong realistic um, support to each poem, everything there references, uh, something that actually happened in the life of the author. So, yes, um, she she did keep her dead husband's heart in a box with the writing desk and so on. I, I, I can't quite recall. I think the... Maybe the heart is buried with her now. I'm not entirely sure. Oh wow! I, I, it's been a long time since I've I've read that biography, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure people could do that today. <laughs> <laughs> Go down to the funeral home and look. I, as you say, look, I really loved him. Can I just keep an organ? <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I mean, I'm assuming there was no formaldehyde or anything like that, so it just sort of macerated away in its little box or dried up or what, what or whatever um, disembodied hearts do when you, you take them away from the corpse surrounding them and, you know, keep them with you. Yeah, it's I, – I don't even know. <laughs> no, <laughs> there, there are some things I don't look up um, in, <laughs> in search of research. I have learned that quite well. Um. <laughs> so you kind of hold from all these different biographies, like what were, I mean, other, I mean, clearly the, the keeping a human heart in your cabinet is definitely a standout in terms of uh, quirkiness, <laughs> to put it lightly. But like, what were some of the other like things you learned about these writers that were kind of standout, fascinating things? The other quirky things that I learned about these writers, it started with, I think, the similarity the, um, the similarity in personality and feeling that I got from, from Catherine Mansfield and Mary Shelley. But what was slightly disturbing as I went through was how many of these women um, were, shall we say, um, they had difficult and at times very unhappy lives. I mean, Janet Frame, who was one of New Zealand's greatest writers, and um, Sylvia Plath, both ended up having electroshock therapy. Um, Sylvia Plath and Virginia Woolf both killed themselves. And uh, 
Janet Frame's sister died by drowning. Virginia Woolf died by drowning. There is there is these parallels, these sort of mirrors that keep repeating over and over. And if you're a writer yourself, especially a woman writer, looking at looking at all these um, authors who have gone before you, it is slightly concerning, really. <laughs> I mean, is is this the life of a woman writer? Sort of misery and woe leading to a horrible early death. So that appealed to the horror writer in me, even if it um, does not so much appeal to to the writer, because. Uh, I would like to think that my end will not be like that, and most of the writers I know, I hope, will not end up like that. You would think I would say all, but, you know, uh, well, you know, I would hope that all of them would not turn up like that. And it's especially interesting, too, I think, when these women come to know each other. I mean, obviously, Catherine Mansfield and Mary Shelley were too far apart. Uh, Shelley died before Catherine Mansfield was born, I believe. But Catherine Mansfield and Virginia Woolf did know each other and quite well. Um, it wasn't an easy relationship. They were distinctly competitive because both were modernist writers in this sort of age where modernism was, was flourishing in the literary world. And uh, they were, I think, probably the two most, well, in Britain at the time, the two most prominent women writers working in modernism. And so there was a very, very competitive edge to their relationship. It was very much a love-hate relationship. I believe um, Virginia Woolf said that Catherine Mansfield was the only writer she was ever jealous of. And so there was this, this there was this sort of undertone of, of bitchiness between them um, because Virginia Woolf had... Uh, they came from quite different social classes. Virginia Woolf was, you know, her family was quite embedded in the literary and sort of socially. She was of a higher class, I, I guess you would say. Catherine Mansfield did not come from a poor family, not by New Zealand standards. I mean, they had enough money to send their daughter overseas to work on her cello which was the reason why they'd sent her over to, you know, the UK when she was 17 or 18 or so. And the cello did not last long. Um, she was corrupted by the written word and <laughs> and ran off with um, after her marriage failed. But but there was still this, this prejudice against the colonies, you know, this little colonial writer from down at the bottom of the world coming to be competition to... Virginia Woolf and I think that's a very interesting relationship because there is a sort of sense of condescension there almost that you know this this person who was so distant and had so few advantages in comparison should have been I think someone to to mentor maybe um, or to instead of someone to compete with so I, I found that very interesting, um, the sort of push-pull relationship between the two of them. I mean, always trying to, to compete, because that's something that I haven't felt myself as a writer. I have a writer's group. We meet every two weeks, and we're all about at the same stage of our, our careers, sort of. Uh, but it's, it's far more supportive than the relationship between Virginia Woolf and Catherine Mansfield ever was. And so it's it's something that I find very interesting to explore because you would have thought that, you know, these two women would have found something in common working in the same area of literature and sharing the same experience of, of gender. And yet it did not bring them together in a particularly productive way. It may have been more productive uh, in keeping them apart, actually, because they're always trying to outdo each other. Um, so that has been interesting, um, reading all these biographies, because that's how I got the information. All the poems have this fantasy gloss and this horror gloss, but they are all the the actual biographical information is, is accurate. Um, so it's been very interesting reading these biographies and, and learning about these women and picking out facets of their life, um, like a crow almost picking over grave bones. 
it does make you wonder, you know, in 50 years, if someone comes to look at my own writing, um, what aspects of it or of me would, would they pick out to write about in, in the future? That's quite a disturbing thought, really, because I imagine that what they would pick and what I would pick for them to write about would be two entirely different things. Um, I would I would hope that they would look at, for instance, my tendency to and my interest in mixing science with speculative fiction. Uh, I do a lot of sort of science work in science history. Um, so I would like that perhaps to to be talked about um, how how a sort of latent scepticism informs my work, I would hope. But to be honest, I I went through and picked out the interesting bits of their lives and the gory bits, like the heart in the box when I was doing it. So I think they would be more likely to pick out, I don't know, impatience perhaps? <laughs> a rather mean sense of humour sometimes? <laughs> um, a fascination with the monstrous? I mean, what do you say about someone like that? I don't, I don't know. I hope that if they do it, that if um, someone ever writes about me in the way that I have written about Mary Shelley, that I am long dead before they do it, so I don't have to, you know, cringe my way through through their perceptions of my life. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about your book was the way the monster goes looking for this sense of motherhood and self and kind of evolves throughout the course of these poems, gaining a sense of identity beyond just these women. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So in the book, as you say, the the monster goes looking for this sense of, of motherhood and evolves through the book. And it wasn't intentional when I began, because of course there was only the Mary Shelley poem first, and there was as in the book Frankenstein, the, the monster is left alone. And of course, when I read the Catherine Mansfield biography and decided to bring the monster into her life, there had to be a, a reason for that. I mean, the monster isn't just wandering around Europe bumping into writers at random, um, because I wasn't picking out writers at random. I was picking out women writers who gave me the same feel from their lives as, as Mary Shelley did the same sort of fascination with with the monstrous um, and with how monsters could be seen, I think, almost in society. Because Catherine Mansfield didn't didn't write about monsters, obviously. She she wrote these hard, almost vicious little stories, often about life in the New Zealand that she'd left. Her most famous story, for instance, I think, is The Garden Party. And I said before that, you know, I didn't enjoy Catherine Mansfield's short stories in school when we were made to publish them. I think I just didn't appreciate them at the time because after I read the biography, I, I went back to read her stories and they're brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant. And The Garden Party, which bored me to tears, you know, when I was 14, is is fascinating what it is it's about this uh, upper middle class family who is throwing a garden party and outside the gate while they're preparing for the party a man is knocked down and he's from the lower classes this little huddle of poverty stricken cottages outside this this glorious wealthy garden and he's killed and the the younger daughter of the family says you know we can't have the party we can't keep going um, because you know his his wife is living just in the cottage just outside the gate she's going to have his dead body in in her in her house um, while they they wait for the the funeral because of course that's what they did at the time they had they the body was taken home until it was buried and she'll be hearing our celebration all afternoon and her mother says well don't be silly don't be silly of course they won't expect us to 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 cancel the party and the party goes on with this sort of absolute lack of compassion which is in itself um quite a monstrous thing and 
So there is this, I think, this fascination, and that was one of the things that linked both Mansfield and Shelley for me, this fascination with with the monstrous, this irresponsibility to to other people around you for the consequences of your own actions. And so it couldn't be random, the, the monster bumping into Catherine Mansfield. And I thought, well, that's so similar. What if the monster is is looking for that similarity specifically? What if it's missing its mother, missing Mary Shelley, who was not a good mother, not in my poems anyway. So it's it's looking for almost a redo of, of that relationship. It's looking for a more positive maternal relationship. And it doesn't really get it uh, because Catherine Mansfield is, in her way, as absolutely selfish as, as Mary Shelley is. And besides, she doesn't really want to, to mother this monster that comes to her that's so full of, of need and misery. And, you know, you can't entirely blame her. I mean, if some shambling hulk of random flesh that was stitched together, you know, shuffled up to my doorstep, I might invite it in for tea, but I don't think I would want to sort of raise it and, and listen to its, its, its complaints and, you know, pat it on the head and comfort it or anything like that. You know, you'd be interested in the same way that you're interested in some sort of freak. And if you're an all a decent person, you know, you try to be polite in your interest. You know, you try not to stare or or do anything to to make this sort of monstrous creature uncomfortable. But Mary Shelley's monster, the creature she made, it, it was monstrous in its appearance. It, it was monstrous in what it learned to do. Because um, the, the creature that was created in Frankenstein, despite its external hideousness, was at first, you know, a, a decent human being, well, a, a decent creation. It wanted to be kind and to get on with other people, but it was excluded from society because of its monstrous appearance and because of that failure of compassion, it became this ever more hideous, murderous creation. And I didn't want that to happen to this monster because, you know, not only would that be sort of retelling the Frankenstein story without adding a whole lot in, but it would be, it's its sad. I mean, it's a tragedy, Frankenstein. It's not a, it's not a story that anyone would want to emulate. But that being said, it, it's not really in this collection of poems, it's not Catherine Mansfield's responsibility to, to rehabilitate this thing. I mean, she has her own problems. Um, she has left her husband. She's living alone um, in a, in a small community in, in Europe, she's having her, her the miscarriage of a child she desperately wanted. And, you know, she's got the beginnings of consumption, the, the illness that would eventually take her life. You know, she's got enough on her plate. She cannot nurture this monster in the way that it, it requires. And so the monster having been failed by Mary Shelley, and having been sent away by Catherine Mansfield, keeps traps in the world, looking for some way to create the experiences that it wanted for itself, these maternal experiences, because it keeps looking for Mary Shelley and, and all these women writers that it goes to, and it keeps finding facets of her in them. But it's never enough, and it's never enough, and it's never enough. And at... <laughs> When it gets to that point, I think the only thing that you can do, that the monster can do, it can go the Frankenstein route and become miserable and murderous and, and truly monstrous, or it can grow in a different direction. It can begin to see itself as more than the creation of. And I think in a way that's what many writers do with their books, you can create this tragic, <laughs> twisted little thing and, and send it out into the world, but there's no guarantee that 
that people will receive it in the same way that you that you offered it up. I mean, people's perceptions of books are often very different than what the author intended. The books develop their own identity. And I think that's certainly what has happened with with the with the monster here. It's it's gone through all these women and it's looked at them and it's learned from them in the same way that, you know, we learn from books when, when we read them. But it it can't go through life being identified it can't go through life basing its entire identification on people who don't want it. And I think that's fundamentally a, a very hopeful thing for a monster to to discover. Speaking of the monster, which in your poems is made of ink and mirrors, I noticed on the back of the book jacket how it mentions that monsters are a reflection of us. Can you talk a bit about monsters and how they reflect us and the world? So, yes, on the book jacket, it, it does say how, how monsters are are reflections of us because that's absolutely true i mean when we talk about monsters which we do i mean a lot of our culture is is based on our perceptions of the monstrous especially in horror uh all those horror movies about things that come out of the dark to eat us giant alligators in the sewers you know sharks in the ocean what we can be turned into by infection or contamination or consumption. And that's all facets, I think, of, of what we are afraid of in ourselves. I mean, you can give the, the pat answer that humans, you know, are monsters themselves. And I think we've certainly seen in history people who behave monstrously towards others. Um, the serial killers of the world, for instance. But... Horror is, I think, more than serial killers. It allows us to use reflections to focus on things that we are particularly afraid of. For instance, um, talking about creature horror, the I don't know, one of my favourite um, horror movies, one of my favourite creature horror movies. You know, um, these these literal monsters that that come out of the woods is this this B movie called Prophecy from the nineteen seventies. It's got mutant bears in it. Uh, that the environment is, is poisoned by methyl mercury from a polluting paper mill, and it sends the whole ecosystem um, into into mutations. And there's this terrible. <laughs> I mean, the special effects are not great, but that's part of the fun. There are these terrible, enormous mutant bears that go around eating campers and some sort of vengeance. And I'm entirely on the side of the bears, by the way, but but they are monsters that have been created by by us. When I say us, I mean, you know, the paper mill owners of the film and the people who looked away and allowed the pollution to happen. And they're also monsters that are reflections of us. They are reflections, say, of the absolute lack of care to towards the environment um, and how that can come back and, and bite you in the ass. And so I think when we look at monsters in horror, we are looking at facets of our own personalities that are sort of magnified and perhaps exaggerated a little um, in order to to reflect the parts of us that we don't like very much. And I think that was what was happened that happened particularly in in the Mary Shelley poem because the first poem, the one about the relationship between Mary Shelley and and the monster, it wasn't the same monster as the one that Frankenstein, that Dr. Frankenstein made in the book. Mary Shelley, in that first, in my first poem, she created a second monster out of the parts of herself that she didn't like, because she was an extremely intelligent woman. And if you if you read her writings, um, she had a. I think an interesting relationship with herself, as I think we all do. I think she was very aware of of her flaws and in the ways in which she had failed herself and and failed the others around her. And so I think if we all had the ability to create a monster, we would do it 
primarily from the parts of us of, of ourselves that we that we didn't like, that we were afraid of, that we had contempt for. And there would be this shuffling, hulking beast of a creature come out, sort of cobbled together of, you know, little bits of, of cowardice and and lack of compassion, uh, selfishness and spite. And that would come out magnified and it would look in some ways very like us, a sort of fractured and mirror version of us. So I think that is something that we see a lot in horror. And I think it's one of the most interesting things about horror, which is my favourite genre of all, and that it is used to explore the self, I think, more than any other genre. And I think that's just fascinating. So switching gears a little bit, something I've noticed that you've talked about in other interviews is food and horror and the concept of women in consumption. And I think that comes through in this book a little bit, as well as the sense of the way literature is consumed and the way women interact with that in the book. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, this idea of, of consumption, um, especially women and consumption. Um, I've written quite about quite a lot about this before. I wrote a series of essays that were collected into a book about food and horror, about essentially the power relationships within that because power is very much a, a part of food because we need it. We need food to live. We we absolutely cannot live without it. And so how how that food is distributed, how it's gathered, how it, it's cooked and um, shared and given out to other people, it's it's very much a relationship of of power and and, and consumption. What we choose to eat, what we choose not to eat, what what we're not allowed to eat. So I, I found that very interesting, and that's why last year I um, I had a book come out. I was the editor of it, uh, Sharp and Sugar Tooth. It was a series. It was a collection of of stories from a lot of uh, women and non-binary authors about the relationship between women and food, because women are associated with food very strongly. I mean, in, in many parts of the world, they are the ones who are expected to to provide the food, to, to cook the food and to distribute it, you know, especially within a, a family environment. And yet um, the relationship of women with consumption is very much inverted in a way in that in media particularly, women are perceived as um, something to be consumed. And so on, on the one hand, you have the women as providers of food, uh, providers of as, you know, um, people who facilitate consumption. And on the other hand, you have women who are there to be consumed. And that is a very difficult and, and interesting balancing act. And it's something that I think... It, it does come through in Mary Shelley Makes a Monster a little bit. I, I'm not entirely sure that I, I looked at it deliberately, but I think looking back, um, that interest that I have in the relationship between food and women and consumption has come out in a very sort of, I don't know if it's particularly subtle, but it's certainly there in the book because um, we consume these women all the time. Um, Mary Shelley, Angela Carter, Sylvia Plath, um, we consume their works and their works are parts of them. I mean, in, in some cases, especially with people like Sylvia Plath and Janet Frame, they are almost regurgitating this, this horror that they have lived through. Uh, in Janet Frame's case, she was uh, hospitalized in a in a mental hospital and mistakenly given electric shock treatment. She was actually scheduled for a lobotomy on the grounds that I believe she was thought to be, I think she was thought to be schizophrenic when she wasn't. She was just horribly, horribly shy. But because, you know, mental health was not, was even less well understood back then than it was today. Uh, she was diagnosed, misdiagnosed with, with this illness and scheduled for a lobotomy. And the, the thing that saved her from the lobotomy was that one of her stories won a competition. And that 
caused, you know, the doctors to to have another look, to think, you know, well, this person has real literary talent. Maybe we should not take away part of her brain just yet, um, which is awful. It's it's an awful thought. I mean, what if she'd just been a, a normal woman, you know, shyer than most, with no literary talent? Would they have got – they'd have just gone ahead anyway. Um, because she they would have thought her behavior more acceptable post lobotomy um she would have been easier for society for society to deal with easier to to consume in a way and she wrote about these experiences in several books um faces in the water for instance and in her her autobiography an angel at my table these <laughs> So her experiences in these books were horrifying things, and we consume that. Uh, we we read the books; they're made into into films and into miniseries. And it's something that, as an audience, we are interested in. We get interest and entertainment from consuming the stories of very real suffering. And there's no doubt that I'm exploiting that myself um, in in this book, and it's it's a difficult thing, I think, because I think we have a responsibility to be ethical consumers in in the things that we eat, and I'm absolutely certain that I'm not a whole lot of the time, and I think a lot of us aren't. By which I mean, we're not. I'm not just saying, you know, oh, we're we're not buying the the free range chicken eggs or, or you know, um, clothes that aren't made in, in sweatshops. I'm also saying, you know, we we flock to see films where women are brutalised. We read books. That ex- that um, regurgitate these awfully painful experiences, and we we praise them, and often for the excellence of their writing, which in Janet Frame's case is certainly certainly so. But then we we recreate these experiences in in other ways. We we package them out. We reinterpret them. And I think that's what I've I've done in a way. And, and Mary Shelley makes a monster. It's a it's a different form of consumption, but it, it's certainly there. I mean, all these these women's lives packaged together because there has been a flavour in in their consumption that spoke to me while I was consuming them, which made me think, you know. These, these flavors, these tastes go well together. Let me package them up in this little book and, and see what happens, see, see what other people think of, of that same taste. And so that's it, it's quite disturbing in a way. It, it's also the, the foundation, I think, of, of art and consumption is that we do manipulate it. If we do, we, should we? Um, I'm not entirely sure. But we do. Yeah, in particular, there's a specific moment in the book in which Virginia Woolf threatens to eat the monster's tongue because Catherine's words are inscribed on it. Um, And I think that kind of reflects this idea of consumption in literature. Yes, um, Virginia Woolf threatens to eat the monster's tongue because Catherine... Mansfield's words are inscribed on it. That's playing into the the jealousy between them that I was talking about before, especially I think Virginia Woolf's jealousy of, of Catherine Mansfield, you know, the the only writer whose words she'd ever been jealous of. And I don't know about all of you, but I suspect, um, as is the case for me, sometimes you read something that is so beautifully worded, the prose is so accomplished that I think I'd have given anything to written that, <laughs> anything. And I feel excited when I read prose like that because it's something to measure myself against. It's something to say, well, look how beautiful this is. 
use it as incentive to, as an example, to improve my own writing. And, and that's all very well and good. But, you know, occasionally there comes something where I think, God, I'd have, I'd have done anything to have written that, anything. And that is, I think, jealousy of, of other people's writing, um, jealousy of, of what they've achieved. And you just want to consume it. To, to eat it up, to have these words inside you, to be able to regurgitate them, I think, yourself, to, to feel the flavor of them. Because I think words do have flavor and they have a feel in your mouth when you say them. You know, some are sort of spiky and some sort of are very liquid and, and some are quite sweet and, and saccharine and some just taste bad and, and you just don't want to say them. Interesting. Um, would you like to read a section from one of the poems in your book? So, yes. A specific moment in the book where Virginia threatens to eat the monster's tongue. Here we are. Uh, this is from the Virginia Wolf poem. Catherine's words are the only ones she has ever been jealous of, and the monster has them engraved on its tongue. I should cut that out and eat it, says Virginia. Would you like that, monster? Would you like to have Catherine taken from you? Would you like her words out of your mouth? Really, you must be gagging on them by now. Do they rot in your mouth, monster? I can give you something better, she says. Virginia's tongue, when touched with its own, tastes of rock pools and reaching in enemies. She sucks on Catherine's tongue, the bitter, barren flavour, and thinks of abandonment, a body floated out of reach. We all have our guiding lights, monster, she says. If only you were more like her. If only you were less. Beautiful. As this poem shows, there's kind of a delight in creepy gothic horror. Can you talk a bit about what draws you to the horror side of the genre world? So uh, what draws me to the horror side of the genre world? I love horror. I've, I've loved it ever since I was a kid. Um, when I was a kid, my friends and I, we all loved horror. We would have sleepovers pretty much every Saturday night. We'd, you know, every, everyone's house would have a turn. And we'd all go down to the local video store because they still had video stores then. And, and we'd pick out horror films and we'd watch them behind our teddy bears and, and shriek. Um <laughs> Uh, I think, too, a, a lot of children's books are on, written on a horrifying scale. I mean, if you look at, just look at fairy tales, they're awful. They have fundamentally terrible, um, especially the grim ones. And, and did they ever have the right name for fairy tales? Uh, the stepmother, you know, who was rolled in a barrel full of nails until she died. The little brother and sister who were Hansel and Gretel who were abandoned in the woods by by their parents to starve because there wasn't enough money to feed them I mean fairy tales are awful they're awful and and yet we eat them up I think it was C.S. Lewis that said that that children like to be scared obviously not in so much in in real life but they like to be scared in the media that they consume because it's a safe way of learning to deal with the emotions of fear you can watch, you know, monster alligators coming to drag you into the swamp and consume you without being scared that it will actually happen. Or maybe if you lived in northern Australia by the edge of a, by the edge of the ocean, um, you might have a more credible fear. But here in New Zealand, when we were watching, there, there's no such thing. There are no alligators. There are no saltwater crocodiles. You could, you could watch and and squeal and and eat your popcorn and cuddle your teddy bear and you know feel quite safe that there weren't actually any any alligators coming to get you. So I think we train children to to look for horror in in their literature, and we do it from the very first with with fairy tales and. Certain types of personality never grow out of it. <laughs> I, I wrote a, a novella a couple of years ago called The Convergence of Fairy Tales, where the, the heroines of five different fairy tales are sort of squashed in, into one person. And 
there was very horror spin on what was happening in in their stories. I think it started out with with Sleeping Beauty because the original Sleeping Beauty is god awful. <laughs> the the end of it. Disney, um, as it does with so many of their fairy tales, glosses over the the end of the the end of the story. In the original Sleeping Beauty, um, she wasn't woken up by by a kiss um, because uh, she was woken up by a baby sucking on her finger. Because while she was asleep, Prince Charming, who was not charming at all. <laughs> under the circumstances, actually raped her and uh, raped her and, and went away. And she became pregnant while she was asleep and she gave birth while she was asleep. And this this bloody newborn still attached, you know, with the umbilical cord and the placenta, crawled its way up her body to the needle sticking out of her finger and mistaking it for her nipple, sucked out the needle and that's when she woke up. I mean, can you imagine? You you're you're sleeping beauty, you you prick yourself on a needle and that's it, you fall asleep. And the next minute, I mean it's it's been a hundred years, but for you it's the next minute, you wake up in this bed full of blood with this gory little creature <laughs> Because newborns are once before they've been cleaned off, they are, they are not good looking. They are not good looking, um, uh, adorable little things. This horrifying little creature has crawled its way up, and you have woken up in in blood and agony with this warm, crawling little beast, and that is. Awful. It's fundamentally awful, um, in an extremely visceral way. And those, these are the stories that we that we give to our children from when they're very small. So I think we we train them to like gothic horror, and I don't think that we can be therefore surprised when they grow up and they they still like it because it's it's such a fascinating thing. It speaks, I think, to what we're afraid of, uh, what we're, what we're afraid we could do, what what we're afraid could be done to us, and that's a very very interesting thing. It's very personal too a lot of the time. So I I go for for creepy creepy personal things like that. And I think a, a lot of people do. So what are some of the projects that you're working on now? I am just about to start as writer in residence at Massey University here in New Zealand. I'm their writer in residence this year. I think it's the first time the position has gone to a speculative fiction writer. So that's that's very exciting. I shall probably be using it to to write a follow-up to a climate fiction novel of mine that, that's coming out this year. It's sort of a thriller science fiction thing that focuses again on women and, and on, on science. It's called the, the first book's called The Stone Wetter. It's due out on Earth Day this year on April 22nd. So I think I should be writing a, a follow-up to that. I'll also be, I hope doing some non-fiction work uh, because I've written, say, academic articles on on horror before uh, for a number of places. Um, I'm interested in haunted houses. I'm I'm looking to do a a study on women in haunted houses, a non-fiction study. So that's something. Awesome. Um, I always like to wrap up with a question which is, is there something that you've been reading right now or some sort of media that you've been enjoying or found particularly inspiring? Enjoying right now? Well, climate fiction, as I said, I'm writing it myself, but it's one of those things that is very immediate, I think. Um, I have read recently a fantastic story, uh, a novel called Always North by Vicki Jarrett, there is something so visceral in the way that she writes about polar bears, for instance. And and I won't tell you too much of it because there's quite a large twist sort of towards the end and I don't want to give it away, but the writing is gorgeous. There's also, in the past couple of years, which is what really turned me on to climate fiction in the first place, apart from my interest in science, the Swan Book 
by Alexis Wright. She is an, an Indigenous Australian author, and this is this book is sort of set in a, a future Australia. It's sort of part climate fiction. It's almost magical realism as well. The prose is so gorgeous. When I said before that um, there is some writing that you're just immediately jealous of because it's so good and you wish you could have written it yourself, that is the swan book for me. It's absolutely beautiful. So if you haven't read it, I would say go and find that and Always North. They're two very different books, but they are very interesting in, in the way that they look at the world. And they have that edge to them, both of them too, of sort of horror and fairy tale. And I find that very, very interesting. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yes, thank you for having me. Um, I know we've had some technical difficulties doing this, uh, so so hopefully this one will work. And thank you very much, Andrea. And thank you, everybody, for listening. This is New Books and Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. 